Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's less. Um, excuse me if I'm tired, and more if I start to become completely incoherent, then you'll understand why. Um, it's great to be with you, and um, I'm excited to be here. I've not um, been to any relational mission things, and uh, having it's actually it's actually um, every other week that we've connected. So it's with a lot of times, isn't it, Mike, over the last couple of years, and uh, we've had a great time with some other leaders of some other networks as well. So we've got a number of leaders of different streams that connect together regularly, and. Uh, really primarily to talk about discipleship and mission, so it's been really good. Um, just uh, just so you know um, a little bit about me, I um, was based in Sheffield until uh, 2014. Um, I was there for 22 years and uh, went to uh, university there and then after that um, went to St. Thomas's Church um, in Crooks, which is, the, which is a kind of um, uh, multi-denominational church. It's Anglican and Baptist um, which is kind of opposite end of the Protestant spectrum, isn't it? But there's a there's another whole story there, but I won't go into that now. Um, and um, and and then um, while we were there, uh, I, I met my wife there. Um, we met because we were both um, worship leaders at the church, um, voluntary worship leaders. And then um, a couple of years after I was there, um, a guy called Mike Breen came, who became the um, he was he came in as the rector of the church, and. Um, he started talking a lot about uh, mission and discipleship and brought a number of things. And one particularly was this whole idea of uh, missional community, the idea of the mid-sized group. Um, as with most churches, you know, we had church on Sunday and then we had small groups primarily, which in, in St. Tom's in those days, back in the kind of early 90s, were uh, primarily Bible study groups, often with the same people who'd been in the same groups for 20 years, you know, and you you have your you have your digestive in your cup of tea and you study the Bible together on a Wednesday night. And um, and really, um, he began to talk much more about the idea of uh, learning to, to be extended family. Um, he'd done a bit of um, study of kind of uh, missional kind of history, missiology stuff, and uh, from the early church, and was was of the opinion, which you know a number of historians would share, that um, the kind of extended family. Uh, the oikos, the household, um, was was probably one of the main building blocks of um, the growth of the early church, and um, and uh, and just really thinking about how that kind of size of gathering, the kind of uh, well, we what we used to say was maybe between twenty and fifty, something like that. I mean, we settled at about thirty people, thirty adults max now. Um, partly because if you have more than that, then um, leading it becomes too big a job for people in their spare time. But um, that kind of size group, that kind of extended family group, was, has been a really important thing for us in that church in Sheffield. And then, so, so um, Mike started suggesting it, and my wife and I we decided that we would um, that we would have a go. So we were leading this worship team. It was quite a big worship team. There was maybe I don't know about thirty people in the worship team. It's a church of about at that time probably about seven or eight hundred. And um, and uh, so we we informed our worship team that we we're going to stop going to our Bible study on a Wednesday night and doing the music practice on the Thursday night, and instead we were going to meet together and do everything together on a Thursday night, and we we're going to eat together first, and we were going to actually have a sense of mission, and we went for a really low bar mission because our church was very good at the uh, kind of the upward, what I'd call the upward dimension, you know, worship worship and prayer and that kind of stuff, and the inward dimension community we weren't quite so good at the mission stuff the outward dimension and so um so um we decided to go for a low bar on the on the mission and our vision for mission was welcome the stranger so we just said we're going to find people who look like they're lonely look like 
no one else is interested in them and we're going to be interested in them. And we're going to start in church on a Sunday and then we'll work out, work on from there. And so we, we, we thought it was a good vision. We said we're still going to practice, but, um, but whoever's going to um, play on the Sunday, you, you'll be able to go off for an hour and, in some other room and practice for Sunday. And the rest of us will carry on with what we're doing. We're not all going to just practice for... We've been practicing for probably two and a half hours every week before then. So we said we think the quality of the music will go down, but we think the quality of the worship might actually go up because we think we're trying to do what the Lord's calling us to do. So we were really excited about it. We shared the vision and we said to them, um, we'd like you to um, go away, have a prayer about it, come back in a week's time and tell us what you think. And when they came back, of the 30 people in the worship team, 29 said no. So, they, and, I mean, they all went to a different worship team. Well, some of them realised they were called to actually be more of an evangelistic band, so they went and did something different. And then there, were, there was another worship team in the church, and they went and joined that. And um, so there were three of us. And uh, I played guitar, and my wife played keyboards, so, you know, that we could kind of cover stuff that way. But the other person who stayed with us played the oboe, so... I mean, you know, a lot of oboe solos for a while going on. So... Um, so we went back to um, Mike Breen, the, uh, the rector, and said, um, we're really sorry we've wrecked your worship team. And, and he was great. He said, no, you haven't. He said, I've been throwing this stuff out there. I've just been, you know, speaking this stuff to the church. He said, I'm, I'm not expecting the church to go for it at this point. All I'm looking for are some pioneers who are up for having a go. And he said, you guys are some of the first people that come back to me. So he said, I couldn't care less if we've got 30 or 3 people in the worship team. In fact, he said... I don't mind if it's one person with comb and bit of paper, you know, playing. Uh, um, uh, he said, the point is that this is, I'm excited about this. So he said, if you guys start doing this, then, you know, I'll start mentoring you and let's just see what happens. And so we started doing this and, and um, we, we, we said, you know, we have got a worship team as part of what we do. So we'd, if, you're, if you want to do that and be part of our community, you can. But it, this, is, this is not a closed thing. This is an open thing. And we'd like anybody who wants to come and, you know, to start with, it was this is back in the day. So um, the overhead projector operators, some of them came to us and said, "We've always felt we're part of the worship ministry, but we've always been the uh, second-class citizens. <laughs> so we'd like to join." So we said, "Oh well, well we're sorry, we hadn't realised that. You're welcome." And we we gradually started to invite people, and um, we had a good time. We met together, we prayed for each other, we began to learn how to engage with the Bible in a different way. Before we'd had kind of two modes of engaging with the Bible. One was what I'd call chapel style, you know, where you've got one person at the front preaching and everyone else taking notes. And then the, the other form was kind of fill in the blanks, Bible study. Those were the two things that we did, you know. You've got your booklet and you fill the blanks in as you go along. And generally, you know, whatever the question, the answer's probably Jesus. And uh, you know that one. You know the, thing, the one about the children's group and the... Yeah, it's the squirrel, yeah, you know that one, yeah. What's, what's, he says to the, the guy says to the uh, children, what, what's got a what's got a fluffy tail and eats nuts? And one of the children goes, well, I know that the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's that, that kind of um, thing. And, uh, and, uh, and, and instead, we started doing what we called synagogue style, which was, um, I don't know whether it really was synagogue style, but it's what we called it, uh, which was where um, somebody would stand up and they would reflect on a scripture just for a few minutes and reflect on how what the application of that has been in their life that week and then and then invite other people to share on to reflect on that scripture in their own life so that you're if you like doing it for those of you who have done some stuff on different ways of um interpreting scripture you're kind of almost doing what um 
some would call a midrash between um, scripture and your life. You know, so you're comparing your life and scripture and seeing what. And um, and to start with, we were fairly, we reasonably canny about it. To start with, we would tell a few people ahead of time what we were going to talk about, so that when we said, "Has anyone else got any thoughts?" there were some other people that did have some thoughts. But we only had to do that for you know a couple of months, and then it began to become the culture, and it became much more normal for people to, you know, to share. And so we do that, and uh, we talk about. We always kept an empty chair, um, not for Jesus. It was to remind ourselves uh, that we were always wanting to look for people who should be here but who aren't here yet. And um, so it was just a little symbol for us. And um, and it really began to grow. And then what happened was that the people began to um, go from inviting folks within the con- within the church on a Sunday to gradually getting a little bit more confident. And we occasionally would have someone invite people from outside of the church. Um, and that was really encouraging. I remember there was a, a young woman in her 20s who was very shy. I mean, you know, wouldn't say boo to a goose. And she one time turned up with a Chinese gentleman in his 50s uh, who barely spoke any English. And we were like, wow, this is wonderful. How did you... How did you you know, meet him. She said, well, I was sitting next to him on the tram and he asked me in faltering English if I knew the way to somewhere. And I said, have you just arrived in Sheffield? And he said, yes. And so I invited him to come. And so who he was, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then one time, somebody, um, somebody's, the, the, the stranger that somebody welcomed was uh, this person, um, part of our group, uh, worked in a drug rehabilitation um, centre in Sheffield called Phoenix House. And um, so the person that she thought she should invite was one of the one of the folks going through uh, heroin rehab, and so he got an evening pass to come. He under it kind of, you know, under her supervision, and he came, and um, he became a Christian that night, which was wonderful. But what what was um, almost not quite as wonderful, but almost as wonderful, was he turned out as a Christian to be an evangelist. So the next week, he brought six of his drug rehab friends. <laughs> and uh, suddenly, Ellie and I were, ca- were cap- uh, catapulted from this fairly kind of, you know, middle-class music-focused kind of group in a primarily, you know, um, university student church into ministry with drug addicts and prostitutes, of which we had suddenly had lots coming. And uh, all sorts of things that we had to learn, you know, for example, when you're doing the synagogue-style sharing from Scripture, people don't sit politely like you are. They start chipping in, you know, and, and um, saying, you know, speak up, love, I can't understand what you're saying. What's she going on about? You know, and you're thinking, oh, okay. Um, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and there came a turning point for me. was um, one Thursday evening at the time where we normally would just be putting the music stands away. I was sitting in the corner of the church lounge where we'd been having this meeting with a heroin addict, bring, just bringing him through the prayer to become a Christian. And I suddenly had this little kind of, you know, moment of realisation. And I just thought, this feels like authentic Christianity to me. Now, don't get me wrong, worshipping God is absolutely authentic Christianity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the balance of all of it, you know. And um, I, I lead a ministry now in the, in the US called 3DM. The reason we call it 3DM, it's three-dimensional movements, is because we're trying to help churches to grow in all three, the upward dimension with the Lord, the inward dimension with each other and the outward dimension in mission, and, uh, which I guess is an expression of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, isn't it? Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbours yourself. Go and make disciples. And so um, it, it, that was a turning point for me, and I, I've never been able to really go back to the way that I was involved in doing church before. Um, so that's a bit of background. And then 
Uh, just another little thing about me is uh, married to Ellie, got two girls, Grace and Hannah. Grace turns 17 on Monday and Hannah's 14. And um, the other thing is, um, my wife is um, uh, an academic, really. She, she um, uh, has, has uh, been a lecturer in uh, early childhood. And, um, and she came across some research, actually, just after we got married, before we had kids, um, where they'd been looking at, they, it was a secular piece of research, but they'd been looking at the question of what were the factors that meant it was statistically more likely. Now, obviously, as Christians, um, you know, we know that God's sovereign in these things, but um, they were just looking at social factors and said, what, what are the factors that make it statistically more likely that children, when they grow up, will continue to walk in the faith of their parents? And they, they looked at different three different faiths. I think they looked at Islam and Judaism and Christianity, but they they basically were asking that question, and um, lots of findings. But one of the findings was around what they called, I think they called it something like um, a plausibility framework or plausibility matrix. And, um, and what they basically found um, was if you've got what they called pious parents, so highly committed parents, um, uh, but no other significant adult role models in a particular, particular faith, um, it was statistically quite likely that the children would not continue to walk in that faith when they were older, which suddenly made sense because we saw lots of families where you had really godly parents and the kids were all over the place with their faith and we, we were thinking, well, how does that work? I mean, their parents are really godly. And the answer is because it's not just on the parents. There's more factors at play, you know. And, um, and then they also found that if you had a large number of role models but they were nominal, uh, which is the situation where I'm based now in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is 40 to 50 percent church attendance on a Sunday. It's Christendom, but but being but attending church doesn't mean you're born again it, by any stretch of the imagination. And it actually, it's a respectable thing to do. So, if you're running a business in the city and you want to have lots of clients, you probably would turn up on a Sunday anyway, just because it's the done thing. And it's probably you know it's kind of Britain in the 50s, isn't it? Um, but in that kind of setting, you know what America is seeing is. Um, that each successive generation is having a significant drop-off. So although it's 40 to 50% church attendance, that's not true in the millennials. It's more like 15% church attendance amongst the millennials. Um, and the new, you know, the new emerging generation, I think, will be even lower. So that fits with that finding, which was if you have multiple adult role models, but they're all, um, but they're all nominal, there's a, quite a high chance that the next generation will not follow that faith. But what they found was when you have multiple adult role models that are highly committed, it's very likely, statistically, that the children will continue to walk in the faith of their parents, which is interesting, isn't it? it do you remember that stuff back in the 90s? There's a lot of talk about it takes a village to raise a child. And it's that kind of idea, isn't it, that we began to realize that maybe this, this whole thing about being a family, an extended family on mission, a household, an oikos, not just um, separate nuclear families that that get together in programmatic times in the week to do some Christian activities, but that much more of a sense of we're committing to be community together. Um, it, it may be that it, it's, it's useful not only for mission, but actually it's a more healthy environment altogether anyway, you know, just for raising kids and so on. So we made a decision at that point. We thought, well, you know, we hadn't got kids yet at that point, but we thought, well, raising our kids is going to be pretty much one of the most important things we do. And them choosing Jesus is probably the most, well, definitely the most important decision they'll ever make. So we owe it to them. If we know this, um, then we should, we should uh, act it out. So we made the decision uh, there and then. And from that day on, in fact, pretty much, I think through the whole of our married life, we've been married 20 years now, 
Um, I think we've had, we only had three months in the UK where we didn't have people living with us, and we've only had one year in total, and that was the first year when we moved to America and we didn't know anybody, which was last year. This year we've had someone living with us. And, um, and we've had sometimes just one person living with us, sometimes two. We've had times where we've lived in community with other families, so we've had like nine or ten people in the same house. All different things at different times. But basically, our kids have grown up with multiple a- adult role models. And the only thing for us, the only principle has been, don't mind whether people are screwed up or not, or any of those things, but they need to be, if they're going to be part of our core household uh, for us, they need to be um, really on fire for Jesus and following the Lord. Because we've got kids that we're raising, we want that environment for them. And so, that's what we've done. And, you know, I guess the jury's not fully out yet, because... Um, it's still out a little bit because um, Grace is 17, Hannah's 14, but I mean, so far they, they've both got baptised in the last year and a half. They're totally on fire for the Lord. They both run multiple discipleship groups in their schools. Um, uh, one of them feels like she's probably called to be a missionary. When she, uh, you, know, um, you know, so they're, they're absolutely committed um, to following the Lord. And um, when we move to America, it's a decision that we made together. We weren't going to pull teenage kids 4,000 miles away from their home against their will. We thought that probably wouldn't be a helpful thing to sew in there. Um, but we didn't ask them whether they wanted to go. We said we're very happy to talk about that um, and discuss it on that basis. But the primary question is, is the Lord calling us to go? And, and we're all as a family trying to distinguish between those two questions and not mix them up too much. It's like, it's good to talk about whether we want to go or not, but the big question is, let's try and discern what's the Lord saying. And they both were clear that they felt the Lord was saying we should go. And therefore, uh, when things have been tough in the last two years, as it always is when you go to a different country at times, um, our kids haven't been blaming us because they made the decision too. You know, we all made the decision together. So, so that's been a really important thing for us has been the whole learning to live in community thing and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and uh, so, so that, there, there's a bit of um, background. Um, during the time that I led the church in Sheffield, so um, St. Thomas's Crooks, during Mike Breen's time, um, planted 80% of the church into the city centre. And then, um, so St. Thomas's Crooks stayed as the parish church, and then we had um, what became known as St. Thomas's Philadelphia, because it eventually ended up with a building in the Philadelphia area of Sheffield. And, um, and when Mike left, they became two separate churches working in partnership together, and I became the leader of St. Thomas's Philadelphia. And... Um, and uh, we went through a really difficult time. Um, I, t- I don't know if any of you have, uh, um, know Mike, but he's in many ways your classic megachurch leader. He's six foot five, you know, booming voice, piercing blue eyes, great preacher, all that kind of stuff. And then this kind of um, this kind of you know dumpy chemistry teacher, which is what I was before I became a minister, took over, and everybody thought, well, there goes St. Tom's. That's going to be end of, the end of that. And um, and frankly, for the first couple of years, it looked as if they were right. It was pretty tough. Um, we declined significantly. But most of the people who left were the people that gave all the money. So year one, I had a £100,000 deficit on the budget to deal with. And, um, and by 2006, I, I basically um, ended up in hospital. And I was, uh, I was in hospital for three months, or off work for six months. With a, I mean, technically, with a medical issue that didn't necessarily bear any... Um, relation to the fact that it was majorly stressful but I mean these things always are connected aren't they one level and while I was in hospital the Lord um, just really challenged me and spoke to me um, and uh, basically challenged me to stop being the guy who'd gone before me and learn how to be me and um, and go on a journey really of 
coming back to the core stuff that we'd always done um, you know, over the last 10 years as a family. And, um, and we really started to attend back to that whole issue of let's learn how to do community, let's learn how to do mission, let's focus on how we actually, how do we really help people to form these extended families. We worked very hard at that over the next couple of years. From about 2007 through to when I left in 2014, we saw um, a significant growth of um, missional groups. Um, we probably ended up with about 50 full-size missional communities. That's kind of 30 adults plus kids. And then probably another 50 or 60 smaller groups. We did a lot of work with teenagers. And so uh, working with teenagers on the housing estates where there are a lot of postcode gangs and things like that, you couldn't have groups of 30. I mean, you're asking for big trouble. So we tended to have smaller groups there. But we saw um, the, the youth work um, using missional communities. And some we had young adults who moved onto the housing estates in community to reach out to youth. That, that, that the number of youth involved in the groups there probably went from about 80 to about 800 over that time period, which was really exciting. There's lots of them coming to faith. And we probably saw somewhere between about 250 and 300 people a year come to faith over that period of time. So it was a very exciting time. Um, it didn't feel um, it didn't feel like it wasn't like some mega church thing, because um, what what people did was they they met as their main expression of church in their missional community, and most of them met in their community somewhere out on a Sunday, three weeks out of four. So we basically said, if you're part of this church, we want you to come into the centre to the main building at least once a month, so that you reconnect with everybody, and that's what most of them did. So they were orbiting in and out. So if you come to St Tom's Philadelphia at that time. Um, on a Sunday, you probably would have found about 500 people. Um, but the thing is, if you came the next week, it would be a different 500 people. If you came the next week, it would be a different 500 people. It was kind of orbiting in and out like that. And we, we, um, we, we partnered with another church in the city to make a second site, and then we planted a third site. And we just had a, a good time during that time. It was all about learning how to do that. And the, the lesson learnt was, it wasn't about my great preaching. It wasn't about superb leadership. It was about the fact that we, we'd actually managed to see a culture get established, a culture of discipleship and mission get established amongst the people of the church. And, and it built to a level of momentum that meant that it kept going. You know, and um, so that was, a, that was a wonderful thing to see. And, um, and then I started something called uh, 3DM Europe, which is basically we were working with churches around Europe, which still is running. That's now run by the guy that I trained up and discipled to do that, and he took over. That works in Australia as well and um, New Zealand and some other places, South Africa. And so they're working with churches. And then I moved in 2014 to the States where Mike Breen had set up 3DM in the States and he was basically ready to retire from that. And so um, I ended up leading, I now lead that uh, in the US. And we probably work with about, uh, probably about 1,000 churches, something like that in the US, um, that are basically from all different backgrounds. The only thing they have in common is that they're Bible believing churches. but you know, full range from Pentecostal to really conservative churches. There's a big divide in the U.S. between spirit and word, which is a real problem, um, which we don't really have in the U.K. as much. And I think it's great being a Brit there because as soon as you have an English accent, people will listen to you. So you can kind of try, and they don't think you're going to go weird and crazy on them. So, so we're trying to help that whole thing. So I'm working with a lot of Baptist churches, Nazarene churches, churches that, that you know, um, Reformed churches, churches that have no background in the charismatic things and uh, helping them to develop um, uh, really moving into the things of the Holy Spirit so so that's that's me that's where we've been that's what we've um, been doing and um, 
What I, what I, as I was praying about today, and, and I'm going to do these two seminars. So this one, today I want to think a little bit about um, what, what do we have to engage with personally to be missionary disciples. And then tomorrow I'm going to look at how do we multiply that out and how do we, how do we kind of make other disciples as we're learning to do it. Um, but I wanted to start, I wanted us to start with ourselves because um, I think there's actually, there are some quite significant uh, changes that have to c- occur in us if we're really going to get breakthrough and, and, and um, see fruit in, uh, in the area of discipleship and, and multiplying out and reaching others particularly in the UK where we have such a post-Christian culture now and, and where there are certain kind of cultural things going on out there that it's not just post-Christian but in some ways, if you talk about evangelical um, Christianity, in some ways it's becoming hostile to evangelical Christianity. So um, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? We can't get, it means that what, I think it's a good thing in many ways, certainly God can use it for good, let's put it like that. Um, I think that um, I think the the upshot of it is that we can't get away with um, trading on intellectual capital instead of spiritual capital anymore. When you're in a when you're in a when you're in Christendom culture, like it's still in some parts of the states, um, basically the the um, credentials that you need to lead a church are primarily what I'd call intellectual capital. You know more about the Bible than anybody else, and um, and um, and even when you're engaged in apologetics kind of activities, um, in, in that kind of setting, they still tend to be intellectual capital, knowledge-based kind of... Um, they, need to, they tend to be weighted towards that. So you'll have a debate between, I don't know, a, a scientist and a Christian over some issue. And it's basically who's cleverest, who knows most, <laughs> and who's best at arguing. Yeah. yeah? And um, the problem is that in order to have, for that to be the useful, um, there has to be a shared understanding about truth and reality. And the issue that we face in the UK is that there isn't really a shared understanding anymore. So, for example, um, when you look at something like the whole question of um, sexuality, now that's a complex question, it's a difficult question, um, but it's definitely a question that the Bible has things to say. say. And, And and probably the primary question for most evangelical Christians would be a question about morality, a question about what does God say, a question about um, what does the Bible teach us is right and wrong, and, and how can we love people in that context. Um, but the problem is that if you're talking to someone who isn't from that background, that is not the basic, that's not the ground from which the conversation's being had. The basic question is one of social justice and freedom. And um, you can only take two positions. You can take the position of somebody who facilitates and opens up that freedom or who resists it. And so, for many people, it's exactly the same category as, say, the struggle against racism in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so, um, the, the thing is that when, when you no longer share the same basic assumptions, you can be as clever and as knowledgeable as you like. It's not going to get you anywhere. Instead, and this is why I think it's a good thing, you have to operate from spiritual capital instead of just intellectual capital. Which is great, isn't it? Since Paul said, you know, I, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power so that your faith would not be on man's wisdom but on the rest on the power of God. And so, that's, is that Ephesians? 
might be Ephesians 3 or something, somewhere around there. I could look it up. But uh, who, somebody who's really good on the Bible, tell us quick, because that one just popped into my head. Oh my goodness, I thought this was a New Frontiers conference. <laughs> well, so, so, someone will find it in a minute. But, they, but it's true, isn't it? That's, that's what we're looking for. So it's really important that we actually are beginning to demonstrate the life of Christ, which is what was always really attractive about Christianity, and that we find ways that we're living out the life of Christ ourselves, and we're finding ways to connect our life with other people so that they can experience that. And instead of trying to bring people to know Jesus by, you know, bludgeoning bludgeoning them with, um, with clever arguments, um, we're relying on the, uh, on the reality that authentic Christianity is contagious. And that if we really are walking in the power and love and presence of Jesus, and we can find a way to connect with people who don't know him, that there is a process that is going to occur. There will be times where we have to be bold and speak and explain what's going on and all those things. But there's a process that, that's going on there where um, the, the, uh, of, his, of his government, of his rule and his government, there shall be no, of the increase of his rule and government, there shall be no end. So where, it, where his kingdom begins to expand. Here, here's the problem. There's two, two issues with it. First is, most of us, certainly if we're over 40, have been trained, if we've been in the church uh, for a long time, have been trained that intellectual capital is the way to go. So we have to kind of unlearn that. And the other one is that we're living lifestyles that are increasingly um, tend towards isolating us from each other um, and isolating nuclear families from each other and so on. Which, by the way, I think is also connected with the increase in divorce rates over the last few decades. Because I think it's not that people are more wicked. I think it's that... Um, there's more and more pressure on the nuclear family, and I think there's more pressure than it can bear often. Um, rather than the pressure of raising kids and doing all the things of life being shared amongst an extended family, it's increasingly on just this tiny little unit that was never really designed by God to take that kind of weight, I think. Um, so so there's, there's the kind of background. We have this problem where we have lack of growth in the church, lack of breakthrough, church decline, the church becoming irrelevant to society. You know, we're facing this severe spiritual battle um, at one level, it fits okay in the big sweep of history. Remember John 15, Jesus said, uh, branches that are unfruitful will be cut off and burnt. Branches that are fruitful will have all the fruit cut off them. Yeah, pruning, yeah, so that they'll bear more fruit. And uh, that's what he said. He was talking about the church, as far as I can tell, probably both individuals and church. And um, you look at the sweep of history, that's exactly what's happened. There's been ceases a great fruitfulness and then it's gone into decline it's been pruned back and and that's been a time of purifying where christians have to go back to roots and learn to live the way that jesus does and when they start doing that and they're ready there comes another season of growth and it's gone on for for the last two thousand years hasn't it and um let's just be clear though right now we're in a severe pruning and um and i believe that the right response to a severe pruning is a back-to-roots movement of, okay, let's go back to asking, how does Jesus do it? Let's try and cut out all of the kind of cultural idolatry that we've taken on, all of the things that we've connected with. You know, we, we know the things in our society that we, it's very difficult to not buy into. And let's, let's start asking those questions about how we really live out uh, the Christian life the way the Bible tells us to which really means going back to early church models, because they're the only models we have in the Bible, um, 
I know society was different then, but there's an awful lot we can learn from the book of Acts as well as the Gospels, isn't there? So, so um, I think we're at that time, and I think that's exciting, because generally if you're at the bottom of a trough, that means you're probably a generation that's going to be used to start moving things back into growth. It's great, isn't it? It really sucks if you're at the very top of a peak, because it feels really good, but there's only one way it's going to go. Um, so I, I hope that's an optimist. I hope that's an encouraging <laughs> viewpoint of where we are right now. So, so how do we how do we engage with um, personal change biblically? How do we engage with personal change in a way that's going to set free the ministry of Jesus in us? The ministry of Jesus already exists in you if you know Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is living in you. His Spirit is living in your body. I always. It always flabbergasts me the level of covenant that Jesus entered into, into with us. You know, I, I, I grew up as a, in, a, in a Baptist church being taught uh, penal substitution and that whole thing and um, fully satisfying love, fully satisfying justice. I never understood it. And I didn't admit it because that's tantamount to um, heresy, isn't it? But I, I, I didn't really agree with it, to be honest, because I always felt like the idea that somebody, I've done something wrong and somebody who's completely innocent is punished in my place, and that that satisfies justice. I just didn't get it. I, I thought that's called injustice. Justice is the person who's done something wrong gets punished. The person who's done nothing wrong gets rewarded. That's justice. I remember I, I borrowed my mum's hairdryer um, when I was a kid to be a ray gun, and um, you know, found that you plug it in, you press it lots of times, it does great things, and then after a while it sparks and stops working. And... Um, and so I just put it back in the drawer and my mum went to use it and found a broken hairdryer and never crossed her mind that her son might be the one who broke it. She assumed it was my sister. And so uh, my sister got blamed for it and got really told off and I thought it might be you know, a good idea to stay quiet. So I let her get into trouble and then I just felt so guilty that you know, about a day later I went and admitted that it was me that had broken it. And of course I got into more trouble because I hadn't owned up yesterday than I would have done if I'd just gone and told them. But I always thought back to that. I thought, well, that's what the Bible's telling us to accept is, is um, justice. Jesus gets punished for something I've done. And of course, it's because I hadn't understood what covenant really is, the covenant had entered into us. And so it was, really, it was a really big thing for me when I understood that um, Jesus has entered into a level of covenant with me that means that though we're two... We're, we've become in our identity as if we're one, which means it isn't another person getting punished for me. It's, it's, it's another person being punished who's become me. And I'm, I'm being um, counted as righteous because in God's eyes I've become him, which is why Paul obviously uses the language of being in Christ all the, t- all the way through the New Testament, isn't it? And um, so that level of covenant... Um, uh, I hadn't understood that and suddenly it made sense but so we have Christ living in us we have Jesus living in us by his Holy Spirit and yet um, most of us don't see the level of ministry that Jesus saw and I mean Jesus was pretty unequivocal wasn't he John 14 he basically said you want to know what you can do this is my paraphrase you want to know what you can do look what I did and then up it I think that's fairly accurate paraphrase, yeah? I mean, that's, you know, so I think when we're asking, in terms of things like the supernatural, how far can we go? Yeah, yeah I think it's fair to say that we're the bottleneck, not, not God. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? 
it basically, it's because we don't really enter into what it is that the Lord wants for us, not because he's saying no. Um, and, um, and so we hit this kind of tension, don't we? We hit this, this kind of issue, which is that um, the Bible says all sorts of things about what we should be, and yet our experience is that that's not the case. And, and we, we're, we have that tension between those two things. And we talk about the now and the not yet and all sorts of things. And basically, we spend a lot of time as evangelicals um, coming up with clever theology to explain why the Bible doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, we, we wouldn't say it like that, but that's actually what we're doing. You know, you pray for someone, they don't get healed. We don't do this now, but there was a time where we said, well, it might be that God doesn't want to heal you. Even though there's not one example in the Gospels, and Jesus is the perfect image of the Father, it's not one example of Jesus ever saying no when someone asked him. He only said wait once, and that was with Lazarus, and then he raised him from the dead three days later. Yeah? And it's like, God might not be healing you because he doesn't want to heal you, based on what in Scripture? Absolutely nothing. In fact, it's unequivocal. I mean, James says, and, and the prayer of faith will make the person well. It doesn't say might make them well, or yeah? But then we pray for someone, and they don't get well, so then we've got to come up with some theology to explain why. Yeah? And usually, we that, at that point, start to become less biblical. And so, there's there's there are these issues, aren't there? There's this there's these two realms. There's the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The rules in the two realms are different. Yeah. Um, usually, they're kind of related, but the heavenly rules kind of trump the earthly rules. So you've got, you know, here's a rule in the earthly realm: you reap what you sow. Yeah. If you want a, you know, if you want a good pension, start saving in your twenties. I realised that in my early forties, but you know, there you go. Yeah. So, so that's a, that's an earthly rule, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but then in the heavenly realm, you have the you have the rule of um, the fact that we are we are co-heirs with Christ and we have an inheritance. The inheritance is you reap a whole load of good stuff that you never even sowed for. Someone else did the sowing. Yeah. It's kind of like. The earthly rules are true, and the heavenly rules are more true. Yeah, the, you know, if you want to run good a good society on earth, you have to punish people who do things wrong, and you need to do it, you know, swiftly and well. And it's called judgment, and it's a really important principle. And if you don't do it, your whole society will fall apart. But in the heavenly realm, mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you see what I mean? So there's these things, aren't there? And Jesus, he walked around on earth. But the whole time he walked around on earth, he followed the heavenly rules instead of the earthly rules. Yeah? So, on earth, you can't just walk over a lake. But Jesus wasn't following the earthly rules. He was following the heavenly rules. Which says there's nothing you can't do if you believe. Yeah? You can't feed on earth 20,000 people, 5,000 men, plus, you know, uh, women and children. And, I mean, maybe 25,000. Who knows? Maybe they have bigger families than two kids. But lots of people with a few loaves and fish. That's, according to the earthly rules, you can't do that. According to the heavenly rules, um, God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He always provides what we need. And, the, and the, those who, who take a lot won't have too much, and those who take a little won't have too little. Yeah? And, and Jesus walked around all the time. And the thing is, he didn't just walk around um, operating according to the rules of heaven. He told us that we should pray every day for exactly the same thing. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. I mean, I don't know about you, but I pray, I 
I went to a C of E church, you know, infant school, and we prayed that every day. I had no clue what I was praying. But what you're basically praying is, let us begin to see the heavenly rules operating on earth, God. Now, if you couldn't have a more powerful gift wrapped up in a plainer parcel than school, than school prayers in assembly praying uh, the Lord's Prayer, then I, I don't know what you'd get. So, so here's, the, here's the issue. We all know this is true, but our experience is still that we, we only have very little hints of the ministry of Jesus. And um, it's really difficult to explain that, but it's just the reality. Most of us have probably got one or two good stories in our life of significant breakthrough where there has been supernatural change. But we've also, probably most of us, got many, many stories of areas where, frankly, there hasn't been. And, um, and, and this brings me to our main passage, really, for this afternoon, which, um, to me, is 2 Corinthians 10, um, verses 3 to 5. Some of you know this. This is the other spiritual warfare passage. So Paul talks, you know, you've got the Ephesians 6 stuff about the armour of God. And then this is the other place where Paul talks about spiritual warfare. And he says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I don't know what Paul is thinking about here, but to me, um, Paul was a biblical man. He knew the Old Testament inside out. So my guess is that he was, he was referring to something that had biblical kind of connotations. And um, the only strongholds that I'm aware of being talked about a lot in the, in the Old Testament were walled cities. And the reason they were talked about a lot was because when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, came through the desert and came to the promised land, they, uh, they came across this promised land that was full of strongholds, full of walled cities. Yeah? So they came out, and their experience as they came out of Egypt and went through the desert was this. God, the ruler of the universe, to whom everything belongs, said to them, the land of Israel is for you. The land of Canaan is yours. It belongs to you. So I think it's fair to say, from that point, they owned it. But if God tells you you own something, I think you own it. Yeah? So they already owned the whole land of Canaan. But then as they face the land of Canaan, there's all these walled cities guarded by soldiers with better equipment and from the sounds of it that we're a lot taller than them as well which is pretty intimidating yeah um I'm, now i'm in the states they're really into basketball and you get these i mean unbelievable people that can just go and kind of just put the basketball in the, the basket well maybe they were like that i don't know i wouldn't want to take them on um and here's the thing they already own it but they have to fight a battle by faith in order to occupy what they own you already own it, but you have to buy, fight a battle by faith in order to occupy what you own. Yeah? And, um, and the, the, in, in, ancient, in the ancient world, they were actually physical castles, phys- or physical walled cities, uh, but they still had to take them by faith. I mean, remember Jericho, that's the first one they took. I mean, that was entirely by faith. Well, it wasn't entirely just by faith, because they also, once the walled cities were down, they still had to fight the soldiers inside. But I mean, it was a, basically a faith venture, wasn't it? Um, but Paul is saying this. You have exactly the same job to have that they did, but your job is a spiritual one, not a physical one. He says elsewhere, doesn't he? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Yeah? And, and you have the territory that the Lord has promised you. It belongs to you. But in order to occupy what you own, 
you have to pull down these walled cities, and these walled cities are made of arguments and pretensions. It's almost like you've got walls which are arguments and towers which are pretensions, and and inside the, the kind of keep, if you like, is 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 an ungodly idea or thought that you have to take captive. That's the kind of word picture that Paul's painting here. Yeah. So we we need to take on these strongholds, and we need to um, we need to pull them down. If we're going to be, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means somebody who follows Jesus, doesn't it? Who basically imitates Jesus, who lives the life that Jesus would live if he's in your body. I mean, God wants a whole household full of people who have your personality, my person, different personalities, but have the same character. Yeah, he he doesn't want us just all become clones of each other but he wants us all to have the character of Christ. And he wants us all to have the resurrection power of Christ working in our lives and through us into the lives of others. He wants all of us to do that. I'm convinced there isn't one person in this room that God would would not want to be able to raise the dead or walk on water or feed thousands of people. Uh, Because I don't find anything in the Bible that says anything different from that. I mean, it's the whole essence of Jesus' teaching to his own people that that's what he wants for us. Yeah? So that means that's, that's what he wants from you and, um, and, and from me. And, and the reason that we can't engage with it, I believe, is because we've got a whole load of strongholds, ways of thinking. By strongholds, I mean ways of thinking built up over time that can operate in the lives of a nation or a community or a church or a family or an individual. I think you can see strongholds operating at all of those levels. Yeah? which lead to unbiblical behaviour. That's, that's, that's a stronghold. And boy, have we got a lot of them. I mean, we're absolutely riddled with them. And in those few areas where we pull them down, we see significant breakthrough, and we see resurrection power beginning to work in our lives. You saw the most substantial one in your life have all come down at the point at which you made a decision to follow Jesus. Yeah? And, and that was the... That was the if you like, the capital stronghold, the capital city, which means in the end, the battle will be, the war will be won. But in his mercy, even though he could just win it like that, he invites us, God invites us to participate in the battle. And he wants us to share in his sufferings. Uh, He could have just won the the salvation of humankind like that too, but he chose to go to the cross, didn't he? Uh, You know, forever, as we know Jesus, when we know him face to face, I presume forever we'll be able to see the scars on his hands and his feet, his side. It's a battle. And it's a battle because he will not remove free will. But, but he wants us, in his sovereignty, he still wants us to be part of it. He wants us to join in with the battle and he wants us to raise up to be princesses and princes of the kingdom who, when we see Jesus face to face, when you see Jesus face to face, which will be on a particular day, I don't know which day it is, but it will be, just like today's a day, there's going to be a time where each of us will see him face to face. I always used to think, what I'd just like more than anything else, Lord, is for you to say good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be great? But actually, I feel like the Lord's pushed me on it a bit now. As I've been reading some of Paul's stuff, you know where Paul says, um, I, I want to know Christ, I want to share in his sufferings. Yeah? And um, I never understood that. It's like, how, why would you want to share in sufferings? And then I, I watched um, a TV series. You, you might have seen it. Um, it was an HBO series called Band of Brothers. You see, that was on a while ago. And it was about... Um, one of the it was one of the divisions that um, went through D-Day and worked through World War II. It was 101st Airborne Division. It was an American division, and it's very moving because 
you saw them fighting and, um, and they were all dramatising real people. And then at the end of each episode, you'd have an interview with some of the real people. And, um, and the real people had been consultants on the filming, so that it was pretty accurate. And um, it was tragic because gradually the number of people disappeared. And also at the end, they'd show the group of people from the beginning and then they'd remove the people who died, you know. And, and then there was an, one episode at the end which was just talking to the people and interviewing them. And one of the things they said was that, in a way, it was almost a damaging thing from the Second World War was that they had such strong bands of friendship and brotherhood between them that even though it was a terrible time and they had all this trauma, um, they spent the rest of their life looking back to that time as a high point, even though it was also a low point, because they never, ever got friends like that ever again, you know? And um, I felt, you weigh this, this is a prophetic thing, but I felt one time, I was thinking about, I just would love to be a good and faithful servant, and I felt like the Lord was pushing me, and I felt like he said to me, I want more than that, Paul. When I see you face to face, I want it to be a reuniting of bands of brothers who stood together in the fire and, and have suffered together for the common cause for victory, where we're saying, at last we can see each other again after all we've been through together. And I want those bonds of friendship to last for eternity. And it gave me a bit of a different understanding of sharing his sufferings. Does that make sense? And, um, and I think that the battle, fundamentally, that we're called to fight... We are sometimes called to physical things, but fundamentally it's a spiritual battle to pull down these strongholds, isn't it? So let's just take a moment, because I've talked for a long time. Um, let's just take a moment um, to uh, just have a, just take maybe a couple of minutes just to have, have a ref- reflection yourself. Think, write it down, I'll have a think about it. We'll have a little reflection time for the introverts and then one for the extroverts, okay? So if you're an extrovert, you can just look at the walls for a couple of minutes. You won't be able to think until you start talking, that's okay. Um, but... Um, Let's just spend a couple of minutes. I'd like you to think, what would you say are, what would you, can you identify one way of thinking that, that has caused you problems in the past that you think may have really changed now? I mean, it may be the time when you actually came to faith and believed, or it may be that there's been some stuff that God's taught you. By the way, if you can't think of something, that's absolutely fine. This is just a little exercise to get us thinking. What would you say is an area where you think there may have been something that could be described as a stronghold, which is, either been pulled down or is in the process of being pulled down in your life right now? That's question one. And the second question would be, and this is a little bit more vulnerable, so you might, if you don't want to share this, if you don't know the people, or maybe if you do know the people, I don't know, near you, you might not want to share this, and that's fine. But maybe to at least think about, um, is there an area where you think, well, I think actually that is a, a way of thinking that stops me from behaving biblically in my mind right now, that actually is still on the horizon to take. We haven't pulled that walled city down yet. It's still there, that stronghold. And um, I know at some point, if I'm going to really walk with the Lord, um, you know, more and more, I'm going to have to pull that down at some point. So can you think of an example of one that maybe has come down in your life? So we're talking about a way of thinking that, that stopped you from engaging with God before. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I grew up in a conservative setting that didn't believe in um, healing. And um, I went through a process at church when in Sheffield over a period of time where first I was introduced to people who did believe in healing and I was a bit sceptical to start with and then I saw that actually I remember seeing somebody get healed and thinking okay well what's going on there is that the devil you know was my first thought which kind of you know with the benefit of hindsight maybe was the wrong question but that's okay and then time over over time spending time with biblical people who reasoned with me from scripture and showed me and then now in a situation, I mean, it's rare for me now. I mean, I, I get the privilege of travelling around and talking to people. 
be very rare for me to have a week where I don't see somebody get healed. In the last week, I've seen, I think, about five people get healed of different things. So that, that, that was a stronghold. It's not anymore for me. Yeah? It may not be as dramatic as that one. It may be just something simple. But let's just have a couple of minutes to think, and then we'll share with one or two people around us. Okay, there are lots of different kinds of strongholds. I've written a few up on there. I don't know whether you can see it if you're from the back. Um, security and money is a massive one in our culture. Um, it, it causes fear and anxiety. It causes uh, meanness and, I mean, all sorts of stuff. So security and money. Jesus addresses it a lot, doesn't he? Particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Individualism, that, that whole thing. I was talking a bit about that earlier. Although I think it's not just about um, very small units of family and things. I think there's other things in there too, like... Um, you know, the, 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 the difference between privacy, which is an appropriate thing for anybody to have, and a private life, which probably isn't. There shouldn't be anything in our lives that at least one other person doesn't know about, I don't think, as Christians. In fact, for me, getting freedom in my life, is, that's been a really important part of it, is learning to be in groups with other people where I'm being accountable. Um, fear of ridicule is a massive... It should be the smallest one, but it's massive. It's, it's one of those things where... Fear of something really small can stop us doing something really big, like, you know, telling somebody that might go to hell, uh, not telling somebody that might go to hell about the love of Jesus, because we're worried they might think we're weird. I mean, it's shocking when we actually think about it, isn't it? It's a big one. Um, Unbelief, I mean, an example of that was what I was talking about with, um, you know, healing, but there's lots of unbelief. I mean, just basically, we're often more... Um, I think we're often more shaped within Western Christianity by the Enlightenment than we are by the Reformation. You know, we've been taught that, you know, we've been given two tools by the Lord. We've been given a tool to administer the things that are below us in the order of creation, which is basically the physical creation, with a pinnacle of the physical creation made to rule over it. So, you know, um, animals and plants and minerals and, you know, planets and forces and, you know, molecules and all those sorts of things. We've been given a tool by God, I believe, to administer all those. And it, the tool is reason, and it's a great tool. And then we've been given another tool to engage with the things that are above us in the order of creation, which is pretty much the whole of the spiritual realm. I mean, it said that Jesus became for a while a little lower than the angels when he walked in his pre-glorified state. So presumably the angels are above us, yeah? And that, that tool is faith. And of course you can't use reason to understand things that are bigger than you, because they're beyond your capacity to understand rationally. But um, he's given us both tools. And, you know, we've got to use, learn to use the right tool for the right job, haven't we? And when you see, you know, a, 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 Christ, a Christian in the part of the world where I, where I am, there's a lot of folks, Christians, who basically just believe what they've been told all their life. And it's very kind of tribal. Like you believe everything rolled into one just because you've always been told it. And if you're this kind of Christian, then you believe these things. And, um, and uh, you hear all sorts of stuff where people are talking about stuff that's just everyday rational stuff. And they're using this kind of pseudo-faith language for it. It really just sounds ignorant. But equally, you get people, you know, some atheistic professor with a brain the size of a planet who's, who's trying to use ration, um, rationality to, disc- to talk about God, and they just, he just sounds foolish and proud. You know, and it's, it's trying to learn to use the right tools for the right job there, isn't it? But remember, the heavenly stuff always trumps the earthly stuff. So you can't trump faith with reason, but you can trump reason with faith. Because you can do things that, according to the rules of heaven, which are not rationally possible. Does that make sense? But I think there is a right to... So unbelief is, tends to be where we use ration, reason 
rather than um, in places where we should, are supposed to be using faith. Um, overwork, I think, can be a big one. Uh, that's often where we, we're, we're aimed for, for just slightly the wrong thing. We aim at success instead of fruit. Success is where you put your time, your money, and your energy towards certain results. And if you get them, then you're successful. And if you don't get them, you're not successful. And the problem with that is that your identity gets tied up in the end result, either with pride or with you know feeling like you're a failure. Whereas to me, fruit is you put your time, money, and your energy into obeying the Lord. And then if you get nice things happening, great. If you don't, then that's okay, because that's not where your identity lies. It's, it's tied up with obedience. And I think we, we grow up in a culture where it's a success-orientated culture, so we tend to overwork, you know, for, if our personality tends that way. Um, consumerism, I think, is a big, big one. I put it big just because I think it's a backdrop for all of us, and it's a paganizing force. Do you remember Jesus said, um, your father knows what you need. The pagans run after these things. So running after the material things, Jesus described as a pagan practice. And I think there's this whole paganizing influence on our society. I like this quote from Alan Hirsch in The Forgotten Ways. He says, uh, safety and security are the primary concerns of the middle classes, especially when it comes to their children. This is not necessarily a problem, but when it combines with a desire for comfort and convenience in a consumer society, it becomes a direct enemy of the gospel. Safety and security, comfort and convenience. We're all raised on it, aren't we? Yeah? So there's lots of things there. Let me just give you one story because we're running out of time and I want a little bit of time just to pray and to, um, you know, and to um, just talk. But fear of ridicule. We had a guy in our, in our church. I, I'll call him, let's call him Steve. Um, he's, that's not his name. And he's a great evangelist. And, um, and Steve had a friend um, who's also a Christian. Let's call him Rich. And, um, and Rich, Rich and Steve are really good friends, but his dad, Rich's dad was a vehement anti-Christian, just aggressive, and he hated Steve. And um, in fact, he'd swear at Steve if Steve was around, and he'd say to Rich, I don't want that man in, you know, in my house, and all that stuff. And, um, and, uh, and then there came a point where um, Rich's dad got very ill, and he'd been told he had just probably hours to live, and so Rich and his family were gathering around, around him, and uh, he's going to die. And... Um, and Steve heard about it and said to Rich, I've got to go and talk to your dad. And he said, well, why? He, hate, he hates you. <laughs> and he said, because I, I don't want him to die and go to hell. I want him to know Jesus. And, um, and so he went to the hospital. He walked in to the room with the whole family there. Um, Rich's sister said, what the, is he doing here? They, they were very hostile. He ignored them all, walked past them all, went up to Rich's dad and said, actually said, now then you old fool, you've been running from Jesus all your life and now you're going to die and go to hell, isn't it about time you repented? And to the shock of everyone in the room, Richard's dad said, yes. <laughs> and he led him to the Lord there and then. And he died about three hours later. And, and, and um, Rich died of cancer a few years later. And um, I was with him um, for the last week before he died, praying with him every day. And I mean, he said to me, I'm just so glad I'm going to see my dad. You know? That's a man who's completely defeated. He's pulled down that stronghold of fear of ridicule. He doesn't care. He cares about the right things, the biblically right things, and not the wrong things. Does that make sense? So I just want to quickly um, give you one little tip for pulling down the strongholds. I mean, just being aware of them is a really helpful thing, because then we can start to, we start to talk about them, we start to think about them, don't we? We start to make life decisions that don't buy into them anymore. Um, but, but one tip for me, and I've, I've went on too long with the initial stories, so I'm sorry about that. So I'm going to move quickly now. 
One tip for me would be, um, you know, if, we give in, if we're given weapons that have divine power to pull these down, what's the weapon in the other passage on spiritual warfare? What's the weapon? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah? So, so we're looking probably for Scripture that's, that is going to be helpful. And Peter says, doesn't he, that we escape the corruption of this world through participating in his great and precious promises. So there's this sense that he's given us these ways of pulling down these strongholds in his word. And that I'm sure you can find some of your own. This is the one, that, one that's been most useful for me, is Mark 1, 14 and 15. Um, it's, it's the statement that Jesus used to open his earthly ministry after he just defeated the devil in the desert and came out of the desert. And he says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. If you actually look at the language there, the time has come. He's using the word kairos, not chronos. So he's not saying tick, tick, tick. It's now the right minute. He's saying, he's saying that there's a time called a kairos time in the Greek, which is it's an event of significance. There's a significant event that kind of gets your attention. And I think we have those actually often. I just think we miss them. The Celts, the ancient Celts, called them the thin times. It's almost like the membrane between earth and heaven gets a bit thinner, you know. And I think we need to learn to spot the opportunities for the kingdom of God to break through and actually spot them and observe them, you know. And, um, and then he says the, the kingdom of God's come near, that's Basileus, so that's the rule of God is near. Um, repent and believe, repent, metanoia, change and expand the way you think. It's not just stop sinning, that's like one little bit of a much bigger word, yeah? Yeah, change and expand the way you think. So what we're trying to do is conform the way we think to the way Jesus thinks. I mean, Jesus looked at a sparrow and it told it, it, the way his brain responded to what his eyes saw was that it was evidence of the faithfulness of God. I mean, that's not how it works for my brain, yeah? And um, so we're learning to think Jesus' way and believe, pisteo, is that word believe on. It's not believe in, it's put your weight on it, step out on it, step out in faith. Change the way you think, change and grow the way you think, step out in faith. And, um, and for us, what we do is, um, I mean, this is what um, Mike and I have been doing for the last couple of years. We, we go through a process where we basically try to, uh, try to look at the kairos. How is God getting my attention right now? How is God getting my attention? That's kairos, really. He, what's going on so that God can get my attention? Let's stop and observe. What's going on in my life? How is God getting my attention? Yeah. And then, once we've done that, we will... We'll observe and reflect and discuss together. Why? Because Jesus did that with the disciples all the time. Look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. I mean, he's doing it with them all the time. We'd observe what's going on, we'd reflect and discuss on it together. And the question that we're asking is, what is God saying? So how's he got my attention, Kairos? What's he saying? As you begin to, to understand what God's saying to you, um, you know, it says in John 10, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, doesn't it? Yeah. It, whether you've got some amazing prophetic gift or not, that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the fact that all Christians can hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the still small voice. The Lord speaks to all of us, yeah. And um, and we and we we discern with others. We learn in one Corinthians fourteen. We discern with others what it is that the Lord's saying. We weigh it together. So, how's God getting my attention? What's God saying? And then as we go forward, what am I going to do about it? What am I actually going to do? Do you know what I've found? If I sit around with people, maybe every other week, and we just ask those questions together, um, and then I get them to hold me accountable. So they say, a month from now, 
okay, you've told me, Paul, what you think you've got to do about it, what you think God's saying, what you're going to do about it. You need, you've said that you feel you need to talk to that person at work and give them some sort of God story because you feel that God's put them on your heart. Yeah, That's great. I'm going to ask you in a month's time whether you've done it. Yeah, We're all going to write it down in our little small group. I'm going to ask you in a month's time whether you've done it. So a month's time, we all sit around and say, have you done that, Paul? Well, actually, no, I haven't. Okay, why? We're not casting stones here. We're just working. Let's, what is it that's getting in the way of that? Let's, let's take seriously. If God's told us to do something, we should do it. Yeah. And as we've begun to do that in, in the churches I've been part of, what you find is that actually there were things God had, was kind of telling me to do. I had them on the back burner for even two or three years, just coming up with reasons to not really do it. Because actually you're talking about crucifixion of the flesh often when God asks you to do something. Yeah? And um, when you start actually doing it, what you find is then God tells you what to do next. Surprise, surprise. And before you know it, your spiritual life is taking off. And, you know, you're getting breakthrough in different areas and... But can you see, we're beginning to copy the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't operate as a lone individual. He, the first thing he did after getting spiritual capital by going to the, getting baptised and fighting Satan in the desert, I mean, he went into the desert in Luke 4, isn't it? He went into the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. He came out, no, he went into the desert full of the Holy Spirit. He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He got the spiritual capital. But then the very next thing he did was get a bunch of people around him. And they started doing it together. We can't you know, Jesus sent two disciples even to go and get a donkey. Yeah, so we're probably not supposed to do much on our own. Yeah? So, so there's this process where we're, we're identifying ways of thinking that stop us from getting breakthrough in our lives. Then we're getting together with some other Christians and we're saying, how's God getting my attention? That's generally connected with that. Conviction can often be a way, can't it? Let's try and discern. Let's, let's observe and reflect and discuss. Let's try and work out what God's saying to me here. And uh, no one's going to tell you what God's saying. They can help you discern it. But as soon as you have someone else telling you what God's saying, it can become a high-control culture. You don't want that. But together you discern. And at the end of that process, you're saying, okay, I think I know what God's saying to me now. And that's where you can be assertive with each other because you say, great, in a month's time, I'll ask you if you've done it. What are you going to do about it? And and it's a way of pulling down strongholds that I'd recommend to you. Okay, well, we, we need to probably finish. But what I'd just like to do is I do want us to pray. And I'll make sure, by the way, to, I'll make sure tomorrow that I put a portion of the time aside for Q&A because I didn't do that this time and I should have done so. I'm sorry about that. So I'll wait around afterwards if you want to talk to me. But if you want to do some Q&A time, we'll, we'll do that um, at the end of the, uh, 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 part, as part of the uh, seminar tomorrow. But um, I just want us to not lose any kairos that's going on for us right now. Yeah, so just as we're going now, let's just have a moment and let's just pray. And... Um, Let's just, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to identify. Um, he's not going to identify all the strongholds at once. He knows we can only hold one thing in our head at once. But my guess is that if you're open, he probably will identify the, the, th- the next thing that he's wanting to deal with. Which might not be the thing you want to deal with. His, his agenda is often different from ours. But let's just ask that. And then if, if there's something that we know we need to be accountable with someone about, we're, gonna, we, we're actually going to do it, then I'm going to... I'm going to ask you to to stand up. We're going to pray for you. But let's just have a moment first. So, Lord, we just thank you that you have said that by participating in your marvellous promises, we can escape the corruption of this world. You've said that um, by faith, Lord, using the divinely appointed weapons you've given us, we can pull down the strongholds, the ways of thinking the enemy's put in our hearts. And you've also said that we're supposed to be people who do all the things that you did. 
And we want to confess to you, Lord, that our lives don't actually look that much like yours. <laughs> and that uh, we want them to look more like yours. We, we're, we're here to copy you, Lord, to imitate you. And uh, we thank you that you live in us, and that's what makes that possible. We just pray, Holy Spirit, just as we go now, that you just show us, each of us, what the, what the next walled city is, the next stronghold that you want us to pull down in our lives so that we have freedom and authority and power. Just come and show us that, Lord. And I don't know if this is from the Lord, but for somebody, um, I, I just had a sense of um, there being some sort of stronghold to do with joy and not having it and not believing that you deserve it or something. So you'll know if that's you, but that's just something that came to mind. And um, I felt like the Lord, uh, there's somebody that the Lord really wants to give um, a real deposit of joy to. And um, if that's you and you know it's you, I'd love to pray for you at the end when folks go. So you might still be processing this stuff and just have to go away and think of it and about it and all that. That's absolutely fine. But if you know, if, if you're at the stage where, as we're talking about this, you know what the next thing is and you know that um, what God's on your case about and you're ready to go and talk to someone about it, to, to press into it and to start to repent and believe, change the way you think and step out in faith, then um, why don't you just stand and the rest of us are going to pray for you. So if you know that's you right now, let's... Um, just stand now and then we'll pray for you. Great. Okay, the rest of us, you might want to stretch out your hands towards these folks. Lord, I just want to thank you for the courageous people who just stood up here. I recognize there might be one or two others who are already thinking this themselves as well, but they are a bit nervous to stand up in front of everybody. We pray that you strengthen them, that you give them boldness and courage. We pray, Lord, that you would show them somebody that they can go and talk to, that they trust. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to um, hear you, uh, to know what it is you're calling them to do, to make a plan, and then to have someone to hold them accountable that they'll actually action it. And we pray that you give them breakthrough. We pray that stronghold that they're identifying right now would come down, Lord, in their life. And you would give them a new level of freedom that goes significantly beyond what they've experienced before. We pray for breakthrough for them, Lord. And uh, for the rest of us that are still processing this, we pray that you'd reveal to us what it is that you're wanting to do next for us. And you'd give us the courage and commitment, Lord, to step out as you call us. We wouldn't hold back. We wouldn't be uh, lukewarm, but we'd be, um, we'd be full of passion for you and we'd be prepared to go to the cross in whatever area you identify so that we can get breakthrough too. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Great. Well, thanks, guys. We're gonna, um, tomorrow we're going to think about how we can begin to build the stuff with other people more. And uh, we'll do a bit of Q&A as well. And um, I'll wait around if people want me to, uh, if you want to ask me something or you want me to pray for you, um, I'm happy to do that for a few minutes now. So be released.